it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world, and hopefully echoing in Ukraine. Trey Yinks is going to be great. He's uh, he's one of the finest uh, reporters in the company, uh, and I just think that he does an incredible job. Keep in mind, he was actually on the ground when the Taliban take over in Afghanistan. Uh, anytime there's conflict, he is there. And, of course, you saw what happened in Ukraine, uh, the dangers of that job, the reality on the ground. What is it like reporting from a war zone when you don't have American troops protecting you. Uh, that's what he lived. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. But some companies have been pretty blunt. They don't want to increase supply because Putin's price hike means higher profits. The problem we're <laughs> facing with gas prices has two roots. First, the pandemic. The second root <laughs> is Vladimir Putin. Exactly. Not my fault. It's the Ukrainian war I ignored and, and forecasted and telegraphed. Unbelievable. Joe Biden, some oil companies don't want to increase oil supplies. That's fine. It's the economy, and we are not stupid. We know who's to blame. Not that lunatic Putin. We will review the numbers, projections, and why oil and gas companies have to start sticking up for themselves beginning next week. Number two. It was an absolute embarrassment. And, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post don't get a standing ovation for confirming the authenticity of those Hunter Biden laptop emails 16 months after the New York Post broke the story that was then barred by Twitter. Uh, that is Howie Kurtz. Uh, the Hunter Biden scandal is equally a media scandal. I'll tell you the latest on the investigation, the excuses many outlets are giving for not linking it to Joe Biden and ignoring it for so long. Number one. Certain Ukrainian parliament members are still telling Congress that they are not getting not only the weapons they need, but the shipments have slowed. We would not agree that it's being slowed. Quite the contrary. That was completed in a record three weeks or so, um, which is unheard of. I don't agree. Uh, John Kirby. Pivotal weekend and the war in Ukraine, not because of the truce talks and the tactics, but it's the tactics on both sides. The Russian cruelty continues. Humanitarian corridor sets up an ambush uh, as we try to get uh, Ukrainians out of Mariupol. Uh, they started bombing a campaign in Russia. Yes, in Russia. Do the Ukrainians want to do that? We'll have the latest. Plus, where are the NATO aid and where is the U.S. weapons? So I'm going to give you some numbers now. Listen, this is our money, and I'm fine with it. I, I think they're, they're worthy of it. But there are some numbers now in terms of what we've given recently. On the 25th of February, the war starts, we give $350 million. On March 16th, we give $800 million. On March 24th, we give a billion dollars. So we have a $13.6 billion aid package to address the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that's everything involved in that, including moving our troops over there. So where is the aid? I text back and forth with Brett Velikovich, an officer in our military, drone expert. He's over in Ukraine. He says none of the aid's getting through. And that's really what Zelensky's saying. You know, 
The S-300 system is not in. Why? The Eastern European countries are not convinced and have not seen the Patriot missile system to replace it. I mean, if I'm Bulgaria, no one's bombing you today. Can you send it over? But they want the Patriot missile system that Poland got. We haven't sent it. Then we have drone, a drone, these uh, kamikaze drones that are the switchblade drones that are supposed to go over there. They can hover over a site and then go ahead and explode that tank, explode that chopper on the ground, that plane on the ground, blow up a, a, a Russian unit. We haven't got it over there. We promised 100 two weeks ago. And I'm not sure what's happening with our actual humanitarian aid. Now, for some reason, we can't think of a way to get the humanitarian aid to places that are under siege. I thought with our technology, since Amazon can deliver packages that way, since we're doing it with different companies to get medicine in the outer reaches of continents like Africa, I thought we could do that with MREs, macaroni and cheese, whatever, water. Can't we do it that way? It seems to be a lack of imagination. I'll add something else to the fray. The Russians are taking troops out of Georgia, taking troops out of Syria in order to repurpose them for this conflict. Let's get the Russians thinking about the vacuum they left behind in Georgia. Let's start having the Georgian troops start moving them out of the provinces they have no business in to begin with. Let's get the Kurds to start, and some of the groups that are allied to us in Syria to start shelling some Russian compounds that are now sparsely guarded. Here's President Zelensky. Cut one. But we must also realize that for the Russian military, this is part of their tactics. All this is not occasional. We know their plans. We know that they are moving away from those areas where we hit them in order to focus on other, very important ones, where it may be difficult for us. And what he's referring to is that the Russian troops, in some cases, are moving out of, uh, out of Kiev. And why? They're going to regroup in Belarus. They've been blown up, pushed back out of the suburbs. That, according to the the International the Institute of Study of War, the Russian soldiers are sabotaging their own equipment. They're refusing orders. They actually, according to one report, shot down their own aircraft. Putin shows no signs of letting up in the southeast, but there is sign of a retrenchment and a backing off. In the capital. They also left Chernobyl. Why they want to go to Chernobyl, I don't know. Evidently, they got some radiation sickness. So the International Atomic uh, Energy Agency says they've been informed the Ukraine, the Russian forces at the site of the world's worst nuclear disaster, have transferred control to the Ukrainians. No kidding. Why did they even want it? I mean, that just shows how disorganized they are and were. But I love what Jennifer Griffin asked. The big story is the aid that's not getting in there. And it goes back to my theme of last week that remains constant today. Do we want the Ukrainians to win? Cut to. Certain Ukrainian parliament members are still telling Congress that they are not getting not only the weapons they need, but the shipments have slowed. Can you give us a sense of the pace of the shipments and what is in those shipments? Are you sending medical supplies, for instance, or is it mm-hmm. only lethal aid that you're sending? No, it's, it's uh, so, so we would not agree that it's being slowed. Quite the contrary. Um, we, we completed uh, the $350 million that uh, President Biden authorized a month or so ago. Um, that, was, that was completed in a record three weeks or so, um, which is unheard of. In fact, from the time... He signed the order 
to the first shipment going on its way was like four days, Jen. Um, and there's already been about a half a dozen shipments that have flowed into the region. Are they getting to the people? They're not. And what I think is important, it's not on anecdotal from our people on the ground, and I believe uh, Brett Velikovich in every way, shape, or form. But it's the parliamentary members are saying that everything, not only said we're not getting it, everything that we used to get quickly is now slow. Now, is it because of logistics or is it because of lack of will? So yesterday, uh, two days ago, we saw Zelensky address the Australian parliament, at which time he's asked for certain vehicles that they have. So Prime Minister Morrison on Friday, Friday morning, that's today, I think, with the 24-hour difference, said the Commonwealth would be sending these Bushmaster troop carriers to the Eastern European nation to support the resistance. Great. The problem is, even on these huge C-117s, you can only fit about three or four. And would Morrison say, and I'll do it, but isn't that what Europe should be doing? If NATO doesn't, we know Ukraine's not a NATO member, but we have people movers there. Can we get it in? So the Bushmaster armored vehicles are being built up to carry to 10 troops in a blast-resistant shell. We got them. I know we have them. We got kind of engineered that during the Iraq war. So this is why... Uh, In a letter to committee chair Carolyn Maloney, 17 GOP lawmakers uh, led by committee ranking member James Comer and Victoria Sparks, who's who's uh, from Ukraine, said uh, they need to get answers. They need to get Secretary of Defense Austin, Secretary of State Blinken in front and center to explain where this stuff is. And there might be great explanations. But if we lose this war and more people die because the American people, by the way, who are fully in support, 72 percent support Zelensky, overwhelmingly support what we're doing and feel we could be doing more. Over 60 percent feel we could do more in Ukraine. So it's not just Brian Kilmeade's opinion. If we have people die because we're not getting it, there's a lack of conviction and imagination. That's not the American way. When we come back, I'll take some calls, one 408 7669 There's other things I wanted to talk about, especially the Hunter Biden situation. More and more of the mainstream media outlets are covering it. Yesterday, NBC did it for two minutes. The Washington Post wrote a story on Tuesday. And the New York Times admitted the laptop was real last week. Why now? We'll postulate when we return. Brian Kilmeade. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. For all we know, these emails are made up, or maybe some are real and others are fakes. We don't know. It feels like a a repeat from last cycle. It's the, you know, but her emails again, and it's kind of ridiculous. There is no proof of wrongdoing, right, when it comes to Hunter Biden sitting on this board. But so far, there is zero evidence that Vice President Biden or President Biden has done anything wrong. So that is a look at some of the reaction to the fact is the New York Times, Washington Post are all reporting that the emails are authentic 
and that Hunter Biden is being investigated, and the, the, the companies that he's actually involved with are Chinese government companies, energy companies, uh, and the Ukrainian companies as well, Moscow mayor deals as well. This is all out there. All the things we knew were out there in 2019, and if you try to retweet this story, obviously your, your account was suspended. Now we find out it is out there, they are real, and the story matters, but it's the drug-addled son of the president. Your heart must go out to him. The problem is, if you look at this story with any type of depth, Tony Bobulinski came out and talked about how he met with the president, then vice president, retired twice, talked about these deals specifically. This thing is going to get a lot bigger. And I think that is part of the reason, in my humble opinion, why Jen Psaki is nowhere. I think they're looking at Miranda Devine's book. They're looking at these emails. They know how big this is gradually going to get if they're smart. With me right now in studio, talk about how big he's going to get is Trey Yinks. You've been watching his reporting uh, with great awe. Fox News' is, uh, foreign correspondent. Trey, I thought it was dangerous when you were out there with the Taliban. I mean, we hadn't seen the Taliban in, in person for, for 15, 17, 20 years. And then you're still there. And we have left. I thought that was dangerous. Compare that to what we saw in Kiev. Yeah, Brian, it was a different environment. You had this situation where the Taliban had taken over the whole country, but they weren't fighting an active war anymore. So you had all of these militants who previously enjoyed fighting. They told us this. They were, in some cases, sad that the war was over. But it was stable, in a sense. And you could get around, you could talk to people, and you didn't have to worry about incoming missiles or airstrikes. The situation on the ground in Kiev when we were there, the night the war began, in the distance, you saw these strikes taking place. And then the days and weeks ahead were filled with violence, death and destruction, not only in Kiev, but across Ukraine. We were often on the front lines watching as civilians tried to get out of the way and Russian forces fired artillery and mortar shells at their position. And was it clear to you that these were... Um, so-called rockets that were hit a vicinity rather than specific uh, rockets that done to surgically strike? Yeah, early on, we were describing the Russian strikes and shelling as indiscriminate, but it quickly became clear they knew what they were hitting in many cases. And oftentimes they use what we refer to as dumb bombs, and they're just targeting neighborhoods in an effort to move people out and then move their forces in. But there were many times where they knew what they were hitting. It was very clear there were civilians in a certain area. There was one day in particular near a bridge in Erpin, and it was a famous photo that made rounds around the world of a family, a mother and two children and an acquaintance that was with them. And this was a day where a humanitarian corridor had been established. There were thousands of civilians fleeing this town on the outskirts of Kiev, and the Russians hit it. The Russians hit it. And what did you think when the Russians hit it? I thought to myself, we had been there just 24 hours before, and no military or man could mistake what was taking place on the ground. There was no gray area. It was a clear humanitarian corridor. We were there then the day after to try to get more information on the ground to understand what exactly happened, and it was clear because you have these humanitarian corridors across Ukraine right now. There are civilians still trying to get out of harm's way especially in the southern port city of Mariupol, where we saw those images of a maternity hospital that was targeted. And the fact is they're not respected. They are established. There are promises that are made on the ground. And then as civilians try to flee, oftentimes that miniature ceasefire violation is violated. 
Pretty amazing because I always thought, you know, when, you, when you're dealing with uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, uh, Al-Shabaab, all these, they, they don't have any values or ethics. If, if you're the West, you're evil, and they're driven by some religious doctrination. But in a modern war, a modern armies like the Russians, you would think there'd be some values and ethics there. The word press is in, it seems to be a, mistaken for a target. I watched what happened to those Sky reporters. You might even know them. I watched it on Sky, and then I watched it raw. I'm saying, wait a second. There's, it clearly says they're press. They were being shot at even as they tried to run from their car. And I'm going, this is the Russians. And they were being brought by the Ukrainians who were trying to show them where the battle was the day before. Did you go into this thinking there were some rules? I think I'm always into prepared. This battle, into this battle. I think I'm always prepared for the worst, understanding that we've seen really the worst of humanity around the world and that sometimes humans do things that I can't even compute in my head why and how they would be okay with doing that. As policy, though. You think it's a policy? It's tough to tell because I saw Stewart, that Sky reporter, the day after they were attacked, and he showed me the bullet wound that he had. His crew was lucky to be alive. I mean, they were clearly targeted. They were screaming, press, 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 and yet the Russians kept firing on their car. And there is and should be an understanding in the international community that journalists are not a target. They're there to tell a story. But when you're dealing with someone like Vladimir Putin, who is ordering his forces to bomb maternity hospitals, schools, and humanitarian corridors, all rules are out the window. So we did go into this conflict prepared for the worst. We've seen what the Russians have done in places like Syria, and they have shelled and destroyed neighborhoods filled with women and children, and they're doing it in Ukraine. See, I always thought those were the Syrians doing it. The Russians didn't stop them, maybe supplied the munitions. I wasn't clear that the Russians were actually doing it. Oh, yeah. They were doing it. Oh, yeah. Thousands of strikes since the, the war started. Russian war plans still, as we speak today, are over the skies of Syria. So much more to talk to you about, including the repurposing of some Russian forces out of Syria into this theater, the Wagner Group leaving Africa into this theater, and some, some units in Georgia coming in here. If you are America and you want to make sure that – or you are fully in support of Ukraine and don't want to put troops on the ground – isn't it in our interest to let them know that that vacuum will be exploited in those other areas to make them think twice about redeploying? I think so often in these conflicts, everyone is thinking day to day or week to week in the short term. But they don't think about the long term consequences of when you have thousands of mercenaries flooding into a country. And where they left. Where they left and how that changes the dynamic. Absolutely. So Trey Yink's going to be in here to reflect a little bit further about the dangers in that battlefield as well as the insight onto where this conflict is heading between Ukraine and Russia, now staggeringly in its sixth week. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. President Putin is not the force he used to be. He is now a man in a cage that he built himself. 
He's isolated, his army is exhausted, he has suffered significant losses. The reputation of this great army of Russia uh, has been trashed. Uh, and, and he has now got to live with the consequences, not only uh, of what he's doing to Ukraine, but he's also got to live with the consequences of what he's done to his own army. That is Ben Wallace, not just anybody, the British defense minister. Listen, uh, I hope he's right, but Trey Yinkst is here and give us a sense of what was happening on the ground. He just got back. I did not know we gave you a clothing budget because all you need is all you need is a collared shirt, right? A jean shirt and jeans, but you do have a clothing budget. Look at you in a suit there. I have a tie. I wear a tie like two times a year when I'm here. <laughs> Looks see great. You guys. And we're on Fox Nation. If you want to check him out, Trey, as I mentioned before, you do an incredible job. But I want to get your sense about what Ben Wallace said. Do you get the sense in your reporting that the Russians are exhausted? They are they are unorganized. And I wouldn't know how you know directly of Vladimir Putin's isolated, but we're getting that from many different sources now. Look, I think what we saw on the ground was early on this narrative that the Russians might be able to take Ukrainian cities like Kiev and Kharkiv, the second largest city there, in a matter of days. And they were stopped nearly immediately across this country. And they have made some territorial gains, but it's nothing like what analysts around the world thought they would early on. So when you see these reports of a demoralized army, it makes sense. It makes sense because it was also freezing cold there, and it's still quite cold. So you have to think about it. You've got a bunch of 18 and 19-year-old Russian soldiers with no combat experience sitting in tanks in below freezing temperatures with rations they've been given by the military, and they're watching their fellow soldiers get hit with anti-tank missiles and stingers from the ground to the air. It makes sense. How about the months they had leading up to that where they were just sitting in their vehicles? And I thought to myself, I remember the talk before the the Iraq war. We're in Kuwait. Kind of pretty good. You know, it's in the middle of the moon, but it's the desert. So you had control of the accommodation. There were fans. There was food. They had had intramural sports. And that was tough, waiting, whining. But I go, what if you just sat in a tank all day on the edge and did not know? The reports early on, and I have not seen them uh, kicked out of the ballpark, was that they didn't know where they were going. They had no idea what the mission was. I imagine that's true because they didn't want it to get leaked out to the public or the Ukrainians. So I'm sure the decision ultimately to launch this full-scale invasion was held, I imagine, quite tight with just President Putin, maybe his top one or two generals. Right. But no one else would know about this because they didn't want Ukraine to have a heads up of when this would start. I think the other interesting thing to think about is that these soldiers wouldn't have had their phones or communication equipment. So – they can't call home to their girlfriends, to their moms. And so you think this is months ago, and now they're fighting an active conflict where they're clearly being used as cannon fodder. So the other thing I heard is they have no way of communicating. So their cell system doesn't exist, and that the Ukrainians wiped out their prefixes, those three digits numbers. So they had to use the Ukrainian cell system, and is why we get all these transmissions. Front page of the New York Times the other day, the audio version would just have – Hours of just the back and forth and the panic and lack of communication amongst the Russian fighters. Yeah, and it's also interesting to look at the amount of information we're getting out because there are certain areas where journalists just aren't operating inside Ukraine. And you have this situation where there are cities with tens of thousands of people that have been targeted by Russian forces in parts destroyed And we don't know how extensive the damage is. We don't know how the soldiers are that were operating there, if they're alive or not. And there is a fog of this war. So your sense, because I saw you had a few presses with uh, President Zelensky, T. 
Tell me the guy you thought he was. Uh, maybe you had some. Pre- uh, you had did a profile of him. Or you had a sense of who he was. And tell me who he's been and what would you've noticed. I talked to President Zelensky just before the war started in the southern city of Kherson, a region in the south that's now controlled by the Russians. Where he and I were speaking then is now controlled by Russian forces. I also asked him a couple questions inside of a bunker where he was waiting. And to get there, it was such a juxtaposition of where we had seen him before. Before he was out in the open and he was answering questions at this drill for the Ukrainian National Guard. And then when this group of journalists and I went to meet him in the middle of the war, we were told to come to a checkpoint. And we got to that checkpoint and we got out of our cars and these black vans pulled up. You couldn't see inside the the windows. And we were ushered into these vans and asking where we're going. And they said, you'll see when we get there and we get to this location. And it's where Zelensky is waiting out throughout this war. And we walk in. There's piles of landmines prepared to get put out if Russian forces make it into the city, sandbags over the windows. And we walk through the dark corridors of this location and ultimately meet with Zelensky then. And when I first saw him, I was really pressing him on the U.S. intelligence and his thoughts on what was going to take place because he was downplaying the possibility of a full-scale invasion. And I said, well, what about this intelligence? And really pressing him. But then when I saw him there, this was a man who pledged to stay and fight. Despite the fact his advisors told him, you may be targeted and killed. The city could be surrounded and you may be trapped and dragged through the streets. And he stayed. And on a very basic human level, you have to have some respect for that. He did sense that the world was watching, and he's, he met the moment in every way. And I think it's been brilliant addressing all these parliaments from Canada to Israel to Italy to the U.S. to, uh, to the U.K., uh, Australia yesterday. And um, who else did he just address again? Asking for help, telling everyone, but tapping into their own history to see their own history in what they're doing in the Ukraine. And I believe that he has got public sentiment in America anyway— and from what I've seen of British TV, by talking past the parliament to the people, people like this guy. The interesting part about Zelensky is he was a comedian and an actor, and he did all these sketches in Ukraine. He's very well known there even before he yeah. ran for office. But he's a guy who knows people, and he knows how to talk to people and how to communicate a message. And so he understood the role that he needed to play here as a strong leader, and he's been doing that. And he has a lot of support. We talk to Ukrainians all the time, and they are happy with how he's responded. What about Poroshenko and the Klitschkos, separate parties? They don't really talk, I understand, correct? Uh, it depends on the day and depends on the issue, but you're, you're correct. I talked to Poroshenko in Irpin in the middle of the war, and he had a lot of very strong words to say about President Putin of Russia. And we could do a whole show on his previous conversations and relations with the Russians, but to not get into that now – Poroshenko is certainly wants to show the world that he is staying and that while he is not currently serving in office, he plays a role in the society. Yeah, I'm going to be talking to him for my Saturday show, which airs at 8 and 11, called One Nation. I'm going to be talking to him shortly uh, from the battlefield. So it's going to be interesting to talk to That's him. That's going to be a really interesting conversation because this is a guy who understands what's going on and he still has all of those communications. So He's going to be able to give you the latest, really, of what it's happening on the ground with the Ukrainian forces. All right. When we come back, I'd love to you tell us, uh, everybody, to tell us how Benjamin Hall's doing, what Pierre, you were at Pierre's funeral, and Sasha, and how they, uh, what was that day like, uh, and how Clarissa Ward and others in other networks really helped us out, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we were at Pierre's funeral earlier in the week, and uh, Sasha, also our fixer who lost her life in this, an incredible journalist, and Benjamin Hall is, is certainly fighting, and he's doing well. All right, great. Uh, details on that. Trey Yingst in studio. Uh, this is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we're back, everybody. Trey Yingst is here, fresh off uh, his stint in uh, side Ukraine in a war that's still uh, very, very hot right now. So the big story, I think, in the world, just by judging not only because I'm up at some ungodly hours, I'm watching Sky and BBC a lot. And uh, and, the, and what happened with uh, Benjamin Hall, what happened with Sasha, and what happened with Pierre. What could you tell us about that day? Look, I just say this is a group of journalists, fine journalists, who wanted to show the world what was happening on the ground in Ukraine. And ultimately, they took fire as they were trying to report on the outskirts of Kiev and Two of our colleagues lost their lives, Sasha and Pierre. Pierre is the finest photojournalist I've ever worked with. He loves life. He loved this job. And it's hard to even talk about him in the past tense now because he was really a friend. He was someone that I reported with in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Qatar, and most recently in Ukraine. And he was someone who could make even the most dangerous interview subjects laugh and smile because he knew how to make people feel comfortable from behind the camera. Would Sasha, you say fearless? Fearless, absolutely. One of the bravest people that I knew because he understood that someone has to go out there and get the story. If we're not there to tell the world what's happening to the Ukrainian people, who will? And Sasha, our fixer and producer on the ground, contracted by Fox to work with us, 24 years old, and wanted so badly to show the world what was happening on the ground in Ukraine. Benjamin Hall, his work is incredible all around the world, our State Department correspondent, but he is a man with previous war zone experience all around the world. His reporting in Syria before he even started at Fox was the gold standard. And so these were a group of journalists who were trying to get the truth out to the world when they took this incoming fire. Benjamin's in good spirits. I've talked to him and he is healing. He's getting better. And I know that we will see him back on air eventually doing his job and showing the world what's happening. You said your conversation was the same, Ben. The same Ben. He is himself, and I know he's a strong guy. He has a huge support system, not only from his family, but also his Fox family. And I know that he's going to get better and ultimately get back to telling stories. He's in Texas. He's in Texas, yeah. So he's going to spend most of his rehab there? Yep. That's okay. from, yeah, from what I understand. Now, do you think personally that could have been you? Of course. I mean, I've thought about that every day since this happened. That was my crew. It was his crew. And nearly, actually not nearly every single shot that you see of me in the field in Ukraine was shot by Pierre, and the majority of them were produced and fixed by Sasha. We saw a lot of your stills uh, out there. Now, I understand that Clarissa Ward, who sometimes does incredible work like you do, especially in Afghanistan like you were, um, she helped, right? Yeah, I'm grateful for Clarissa and her team CNN helped the night that this happened. Journalists from across the board were so kind to us when this happened, and they offered resources and time and sometimes just an ear to listen to when I had to run ideas of, okay, how can we search for our colleagues? And you couldn't find them. No, we, we couldn't. And I'm grateful to her. I'm, I'm grateful to everyone who stepped up and who were willing to give up what they had to help our team and to help Fox. How did you eventually find, uh, find out that Benjamin was in life? 
Uh, ultimately, we got word that he was in a hospital and that he was being treated. He was seriously injured, but uh, he was alive, and that was the most important thing to us. How did you find out about the attack? Uh, ultimately, they didn't come back, and so we knew so something had gone wrong. Something went wrong. And how hard was this with no Americans to be able to talk to and confer to, no commanding officer to – I mean, were you working with the Ukrainians? Were they looking out for you? I I won't go too much into the details, but I will say that our colleague Jennifer Griffin deserves the highest praise because she is an operator and she is someone who was helping a lot behind the scenes to make sure that our colleagues got to safety. And would you say the State Department and Pentagon helped? That would be a better question for her. Okay. Um, But they ended up getting out of there. Ultimately, they got out and and he was able to get the top level of care and Fox was – committed to making sure he got to safety and that he got the best care possible. And they were operating what often seemed like in a very dangerous environment with a lot of questions up in the air. They were operating with very specific plans to make sure that he was safe and to make sure that he got out. We've been out for how many, a week now? A couple of weeks, yeah, two weeks. Where do you think this ba- – does this feel like separate wars to you? you got the battle of the capital, the battle in the south, the battle in the – which will soon be the uh, the – of the Odessa area, which is soon the Mikhailiv. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of different are. front lines. So, where, how do you, how would you characterize it from how you left it, from what you know? Look, right now it seems like the Russian forces are pulling back from the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. It doesn't mean that they're done. I don't think they're just going to give up the land that they captured around the Ukrainian capital, but they're getting hit hard. And there is no environment where it objectively makes sense from a military perspective to bring forces into a city that is fortified and prepared for war. They've already gotten hit hard by the Ukrainian forces, and they would get hit even harder if they tried to enter once again the capital of Kiev. There will likely be more of a focus in the east, but you have to look at the actions on the ground because so often the Russians say they are going to do one thing, and then they do something completely different. It's part of this information war that's ongoing. How do you think it's going from the Ukrainian perspective? I think that they are continuing to call for more support and more weapons, There is a real sense on the ground from people that we talk to. They will stay and fight. And it's why you see everyone from average civilians that you meet on the street who own a coffee shop to the president, Volodymyr Zelensky, saying that they need support and they are going to stay and push back this offense. So I'm not going to play it now because you have to run to another interview. But Jennifer Griffin essentially said this, and she wouldn't have asked the question if she didn't get reports knowing her. It seems like the the weapons and and the supplies are slowing down. And what is the problem? And we know we're writing the checks. We know the money's getting increasing. We know the communication with our president and their president just was on Wednesday for over an hour. Have you heard that? And what could be the reasons for that? There could be some logistical reasons related to this, but we're talking about billions of dollars worth of equipment. And it's an important question. This is about transparency and it's about taxpayer dollars, where they're going. And it's ultimately about what type of support the Ukrainian people and military are receiving in real time. It's an important question to ask, and it has nothing to do with politics. It's not about left or right, Republican or Democrat. It's about the American support for Ukraine as the country is being invaded, as their sovereignty is being violated by the Are you heartened by the fact that the Americans are behind this effort? I think that the world should respect human rights. I have very few opinions, especially publicly as a journalist, but I think that human rights need to be respected. Women and children should never be targeted. And so when that is happening, there is – a sense that as journalists, we need to be there to shine light on this issue. And ultimately, there's a real understanding that if these people do not receive support from the international community, thousands, if not tens of thousands more will die. Absolutely. And he said the war is coming to you if you guys just continue to ignore this. Trey, great to see you. Great work. And I look forward to seeing you in the halls in a calm environment for a while so you can regroup. Would you go back? Of course. 
All right. Trey Yanks, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Now, where are you going on? TV? Uh, soon, in a little bit. Okay, good. All right, look for Trey. He's wearing a suit. He's not. It doesn't have to say press, but we all know you're press. Trey Yanks, thanks so much. Uh, so I'll let you go because I don't want you to be late because I'll take you. I know I'll feel personally responsible. But, you know, to that question, uh, to John Kirby, here's what Jennifer Griffin and John Kirby kind of, not to go and add it, but here's their exchange I was referring to. Cut to. Certain Ukrainian parliament members are still telling Congress that they are not getting not only the weapons they need, but the shipments have slowed. Can you give us a sense of the pace of the shipments and what is in those shipments? Are you sending medical supplies, for instance, or is it only lethal aid that you're sending? No, it's... it's uh... So, so we would not agree that it's being slowed. Quite the contrary. Um, we, we completed uh, the $350 million that uh, President Biden authorized a month or so ago. Um, that, was, that was completed in a record three weeks or so, um, which is unheard of. He, he goes on, cut three. We appreciate and respect that the Ukrainians want this stuff and they want it like yesterday. We understand that. We know time is not on their side. We don't think it's on our side either, which is why we're working really, really hard. And I, I mean, uh, I, I've been dealing with security assistance issues since when I had this podium under a previous administration. I've never seen the Department of Defense be able to move with this sense of alacrity and speed uh, as I have uh, in just the last few weeks. And if they can and it's not getting there, what does that tell you? I mean, there are people like General Keene who think there's an intentional slowdown. There's a reason why this administration never wants, doesn't ever talk about winning, because they're concerned, uh, perhaps, about Putin losing and what he might do. That is not fair to the Ukrainian people. He started this war. He's killing everything he sees, destroying cities after city. We need to stop him and worry less about the guy's ego. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from New York, crime-ridden, it remains. But we hope to get rid of the no-cash bail law and have the rest of the country following our footsteps. I will say this, people are back. People are back everywhere. I mean, it is packed. I got on a 430... Was it a 4.30? Yeah, I got a four on a 4.12, and I actually had trouble getting a seat. I had almost walked all. That was the first time in maybe two years. And I've been on a train by myself at 6 p.m., which is almost unheard of. In a matter of moments, Miranda Devine's going to be with us, New York Post columnist, author of Laptop from Hell. The Hunter Biden story is moving. Larry Kudlow, one of the premier economic minds in our nation, host of the hit show, uh, Kudlow on Fox Business in seconds. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. But some companies have been pretty blunt. They don't want to increase supply because Putin's price hike means higher profits. The problem we're facing with gas prices has two roots. First, the pandemic. The second root is Vladimir Putin. Uh, That is the president. Uh, It's the economy. And we are not stupid, Mr. President. We know who's to blame and not that lunatic Vladimir Putin. We will review the numbers, projections and why oil and gas companies have the have to start sticking up for themselves. 
Number two. It was an absolute embarrassment. And, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post don't get a standing ovation for confirming the authenticity of those Hunter Biden laptop emails 16 months after the New York Post broke the story that was then barred by Twitter. Howie Kurtz. The Hunter Biden scandal is equally a media scandal. I will tell you the latest on the investigation, the excuses many outlets are giving for ignoring it. Number one. Certain Ukrainian parliament members are still telling Congress that they are not getting not only the weapons they need, but the shipments have slowed. We would not agree that it's being slowed. Quite the contrary. That was completed in a record three weeks or so, um, which is unheard of. Uh, there you go. Uh, pivotal weekend in the war in Ukraine, not because of the truce talks, but the tactics on both sides. As the Russians' cruelty continues, the humanitarian corridor shut down. A bombing campaign that is stopping around the capital to a degree because Russia has to regroup, number one, and they're losing ground, number two. We have the latest. Plus, where's the NATO aid and the U.S. weapons? That's another thing that I hope does not mushroom into a scandal because all the anecdotal and stats I see show Things have slowed getting in to Ukraine when they need them most. Miranda Devine joins us now, New York Post columnist, author of Laptop from Hell, Hunter Biden, Big Tech, and the Dirty Secrets the President Tried to Hide. Miranda, I believe when it's all said and done, I think the media scandal hiding this story is as big as what's in this story. Do you? I do. Look, I think this is a story that's bigger than Watergate. And unlike with uh, the usual political scandal, you had journalists and the whole media organisations just ignoring it. Not only that, but downplaying it, uh, trying to minimise the the extent of the story as it uh you know, criticizes the president or who was then the candidate for office for the presidency. Um, We know why they did it back in October 2020 after the New York Post broke the story about Hunter Biden's laptop. Um, They wanted, the left-leaning media wanted Donald Trump out of office. And so they ignored anything that was negative about Joe Biden. They let him hide in his basement and asked him about ice cream. And now, 18 months later, when all the truth is coming out, you know, they can't stop the truth coming out. And and mostly that is coming out, not mostly, but a lot of it's going to be coming mm. out when the grand jury in Delaware comes back with its decision on its investigations into Hunter Biden. And they these media outlets... Uh, August media outlets, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, CBS, NBC, they're all now flooding their audiences with half the truth about the Hunter Biden story uh, because they don't want them to be blindsided when the grand jury comes back. Right. But half the truth is mean there's no link to the president. And there is. First, I want if you could be patient for everyone to remember the debate uh, with Kristen Welker. Listen to this exchange. Cut 11. Vice President Biden, there have been questions about the work your son has done in China and for a Ukrainian energy company when you were vice president. In retrospect, was anything about those relationships inappropriate or unethical? Nothing was unethical. Here's what the deal. The guy who got in trouble in Ukraine was this guy trying to bribe the Ukrainian government to say something negative about me, which they would not do and did not do because it never, ever, ever happened. My son has not made money in terms of this thing about, uh, what are you talking about, China. I have not had it. The only guy made money from China is this guy. He's the only one. Nobody else has made money from China. Okay. First off, before I play her question yesterday, do you want to comment on that? 
Well, it's just incredible because at that time when that debate was on, the New York Post had published the Hunter Biden laptop story, which showed that Joe Biden had been meeting with Hunter Biden's paymasters from Ukraine. Not only that, we had Tony Bobulinski had come out and he was involved in one of the China deals where millions of dollars was paid into accounts associated with Hunter Biden and his business partners. Not only that, Chuck Grasley and Ron Johnson had already come out in September with their investigation into a whole lot of money that had gone into Biden family and associated coffers. So that was all ignored. All those points of light were ignored and Joe Biden was allowed to get up and bald-faced lie. So the question came up again from Kristen Welker, cut 12. Cut 12. One more on Hunter Biden, who has been uh, in the headlines again recently. During the last presidential debate, then-Vice President Biden was asked if there was anything inappropriate or unethical about his son's relationships, business dealings in China and or Ukraine. The president said nothing was unethical. He went on to say, my son has not made money in terms of this thing about what you're talking about, China. Does the White House stand by that comment that the then Vice President made? We absolutely stand by the President's comment. And I would point you to uh, the reporting on this, which referenced statements that we made at the time uh, that we gave to The Washington Post, who worked on this story. Uh, and But as you know, I don't speak for Hunter Biden, so there's not more I can say on that. Wow. So she's saying, doubling down, the, pre- the president's son made no money in China. That is not correct. That is not correct. And we've seen this week, uh, you know, Ron Johnson and Chuck Grasley have been putting on the record um, some of those documents showing money going into uh, the Biden family and associates coffers. I mean, look, there was $6 million that went from CEFC into Rob Walker, who was uh, a Biden family friend into his uh, bank account. Um, there were there was a hundred thousand dollars at one point that went into Hunter Biden's bank account. There was another couple of million. Um, uh, you know, there are bank statements on that laptop that the Washington Post has that Hunter Biden of Hunter Biden's bank accounts with money in there that's come from CEFC. So don't understand how anybody can deny that Hunter Biden profited and got money from China. It's unbelievable. But she they have to know they just can't. This is going to come back very shortly at them because this is going to be part of the indictment. And if Bobolinsky steps up and says the big guy was getting paid, according to this email, where is that money? Someone's got we can't give him. You and I can't have a million dollars in our account and have it gone and not pay taxes on it. No, and exactly, and we know that uh, Hunter Biden has has paid, according to the New York Times, anyway, uh, already a million dollars in taxes that he owed. Uh, his business partner Eric Schwerin was um, is on the on the record in uh, emails in the laptop going through with some accountants uh, and Hunter, his tax liabilities for a whole lot of money, income that he received in 2015, 2016, he never paid tax on. I mean, I just saw a document the other day where he was paid $750,000 through one of his companies, Rosemont Seneca. Now, in 2015, that was just one pot of money. He was making millions of dollars and wasting it. He had huge alimony he had to pay, but he was also spending it in his own words, uh, in his own memoir, on uh, porn, on hookers, yeah. and on drugs. Yeah, they don't usually give receipts. 
Uh, October 2017, <laughs> CEFC Infrastructure's investment wired $5 million to the bank account of Hudson West, uh, I guess, uh, the third, which was linked to Hunter Biden. Uh, he spent a million-dollar payment, was sent to Hunt, Hudson West um, with a memo line for Dr. Patrick Ho Jinping representation. He was having trouble. Hunter Biden, with no experience, was his defense attorney. Yeah. yeah. Well, the interesting thing about Patrick Ho is that that initial $1 million contract was not between Hunter and Patrick Ho. It was between Hunter and the head of CEFC, uh, Chairman Yi. Um, but Patrick Ho was the one who got arrested. So Hunter, although he didn't really do the legal work, he contacted a lawyer on his behalf. Um, that was Hunter's $1 million. And it was really just uh, another bribe. So listen to this, the anger that still exists in other channels until this story blows up in their face. Here is Senator Kramer with Chuck Todd yesterday, cut 13. Here's the reality. If Hunter Biden's name was Don Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, you guys would be treating the, the uh, war in, in Ukraine like no, it was what a about Boy Scout enough camp of this. Gone that back. is the la- senator. That is the laziest attack. It is it's, not it's about the media. Honest. It it's doesn't matter honest. about the media. Is it the right thing to do for the former president of the United States to ask an enemy of the free world to do this? Well, it's what the former president is doing is nothing compared to what the current president is doing in this circumstance. That's really the bigger issue. Good parry, but did you hear the anger that's lazy? Yeah. Yeah, look, they're panicking and uh, they're doing whatever they can to distract and uh, project. And, of course, the bogeyman is always Donald Trump, even though he's not in office. Uh, The the president is in office. And, you know, any politician, whether you're Democrat or Republican, uh, no matter what stripe or ideology you are, you should be concerned about this. And at least asking questions, demanding questions, answers to these questions, because it goes to America's national security. We need to know if this president is compromised in the eyes of Russia and China and, uh, you know, Ukraine. I mean, three countries that are important at the moment. And, um, you know, you know that the American people doesn't know as much as the intelligence services of those countries. I mean, Russia and China know more about the Biden family and their enrichment program this influence peddling scheme that they were running all around the world uh, knows more about it than a, a lot of the American people. So Dr. Michael Pillsbury is an expert in China. He said this about what we know so far. Cut 17. Well, I noticed the point in the Washington Post article about the keys that this office is being set up with the China energy guy gets a key from China. Then he wants keys for his mother and his father and himself and his uncle. So we got another spy thriller angle here of Hunter is in a terrible situation in his own memoir. He says he's addicted. He's getting divorced. His brother Bo has died. And this is when the Chinese kind of knock on his door and have this meeting uh, in Miami, in which they give him uh, the three carriage diamond ring. So it, it can't get any more mysterious. Yeah. Where's the ring? Where's the money? And who's the big guy? That's it. Why can't we get anybody to say to Mr. President, do you know Tony Bobolinsky? Are you the big guy in these emails? Why do you think that he says you are? 
Well, I mean, we can't get near them and they won't answer questions. This has been going on for 18 months and it's ironic. Michael Pillsbury then cited the Washington Post as if this is a new revelation. That story about the diamond and yeah, the payments old. and all the rest of it, we, we published that in October 2020, but the story was successfully censored by big tech and ignored. And we've continued to publish. It's all in my book. Uh, but, you know, it seems for a lot of people who just read the Washington Post, New York Times, this is some massive revelation. I'm glad they're now exercised about it, but it's a little bit too late. The election is over. Uh, you know, we also had, Ron Johnson told me, uh, two of his own Republican members, he didn't name them, but I know who they are, Mitt Romney and Rob Portman, uh, obstructed his attempts to um, get subpoenas on people like Hunter Biden and Devin Archer's other partners and uh, a Ukrainian guy who was going to give, a, give uh, material. Um, and they, the Democrats obstructed him and set up these fake FBI briefings and then leaked it to the press as if he was running Russian disinformation. But his own people in his own party, Republicans, blocked him, refused, said it was too political and they didn't, they just felt squeamish about this whole thing. If those Republicans had stuck together as a team, like the Democrats do no matter what, they would have got then it. Maybe yeah. Joe Biden wouldn't have been president today. Right, uh, because they were the majority at the time, and they would have yeah. if you don't have any defections. Uh, Miranda, thanks so much. Uh, I, I'm glad this story is coming back full circle to you. I hope you send a, t- a ton of more books. Uh, it's thanks called Laptop from Hell. Appreciate it, Miranda. All right, when we come back, I'll I'll discuss that with you if you want. Also, the president blaming oil companies. Is that what you do? Uh, The stats say you don't believe that, and it's not the Putin price hike. We don't get that either. We're also going to go over some details on the war in Ukraine. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Our prices are rising because of Putin's action. There isn't enough supply. And the bottom line is, if we want lower gas prices, we need to have more oil supply right now. For U.S. oil companies that are recording their largest profits in years, they have a choice. One, they can put those profits to productive use by producing more oils restarting idle wells, or producing on the sites they already are leasing, giving the American people a break by passing some of the savings on to their customers and lowering the price of the pump. Or they can, as some of them are doing, exploit the situation, sit back, ship those profits to the investors, and while American families struggle to make ends meet. Unbelievable. Lee, you listen to WABC in Orange County. Yeah, the, it's the oil companies trying to hoard profits. Hey, Lee companies that were sharing sharing their profits very generously with the American public under Trump. Uh, there's an a audio clip and a video clip that exists of Joe Biden stating words to the effect of, we will eliminate fossil fuels. Oh, I know. I've, I've heard okay. it. Well, I think, I, I think that ought to be played right on top of this clip <laughs> to show everybody what kind of credibility this man has. Here is what uh, Nancy Pelosi, thanks so much for the call. Nancy Pelosi uh, was asked this in her presser this week, Cut 22. Right now, of course, we have the Putin price hike at, at the pump. And it is uh, 
uh, something that has to be addressed. It, it, the price of of uh, oil and gasoline, uh, gas at the pump started going up when he started circling uh, Ukraine uh, and uh, Kyiv, and it is um, well even before he went in. Yeah, but partially. I don't say it's all Putin, but it's partially. Putin definitely contributed to this gas hike. So I'm not put, saying it's all his, no, but it's largely his. Right, uh, Speaker. Uh, Speaker Pelosi, this is a supply chain. This is a production issue. This might be a great opportunity to get natural gas and oil to Europe, which, by the way, found out yesterday that they will not be able to even buy Russian oil unless they agree to buy it in rubles. Not so. Uh, Germans, among those who are saying we are not paying in rubles. But the Putin price hike, 6% of the American public think it's the war. 34% think it's President Biden's fault. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. But some companies have been pretty blunt. They don't want to increase supply because Putin's price hike means higher profits. One CEO even acknowledged that they don't care if the price of a, ga- a barrel of oil goes to $200 a barrel. They're not going to step up the production. I say enough. Enough of lavishing excessive profits on investors and payouts and buybacks when the American people are watching. The world is watching. What is he talking about? Who is this mysterious CEO? What do you mean it doesn't get if it gets to $200 a barrel? That's fine with us. What do you mean they're doing everything possible to drill? That is not the case at all. A guy that knows joins me now, Larry Cudlow, gets to set, getting set to host his show at 4 o'clock today. I hope to be joining him in, if this outfit is okay. He's the former White House economic advisor. He's done that twice. Larry, welcome back. What, what costume will you have? Well, well, I'm gonna. I just have to dress up to you. I mean, you come in ready to kill, and if you don't, you do have final say on your, the guest, uh, your wardrobe guest for your guest, right? <laughs> I love you. <laughs> By the way, I love what Biden said. I mean, it, it just wouldn't be Joe Biden if he didn't say garbage like that. It's just so wonderful, and. You know, here he's got record oil prices and record inflation and record gasoline, and he continues his his jihad, his fatwa against the fossil fuel industry. I mean, the guy's just uh, – well, it's Joe Biden, you know, falsehood after falsehood after falsehood. And the funny thing is, Brian, he doesn't get away with it because when you look at his I polls so. – I mean, yeah. I know his approval rating is in the tank, but when you get to things like character – and honesty, you know, and do you have confidence in him? Gallup polling type stuff. He scores equally low as he does overall approval because he's constantly lying about what goes on in the world. A couple of things. You know, next week, this, uh, these five CEOs of oil companies, maybe more, are going to be coming in uh, in front of a House congressional hearing. They got to stick up for themselves, Larry. They got to say flat out, stop with the tell me about these 9,000 leases I don't want to use. Stop telling me that I'm allowed to produce as much as I want. That is not the case. And, and leave the layman like me behind if you want to talk over our heads. But to be to allow themselves to be vilified like the car companies in 2008 would be a huge or the tobacco companies in the 80s would be a huge mistake. Don't you agree? Yeah, I do. You know, 
what you got here is a classic bait and switch. So on the one hand, Biden talks about the leases. And, and by the way, uh, Senator Kevin Kramer was on our show last night talking about the leases. A couple thousand of those leases are in court. Okay, they're being adjudicated in court. But the bigger point is, yes, they have leases. But in order to drill, you have to have permits. And it's the Biden administration's regulatory octopus. You have FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. You have the Interior Department, the Energy Department, the EPA. Anyway, all of them are denying permits to drill on the basis of various metrics, uh, which, frankly, you know, one of the metrics is the social cost of carbon, which they have taken to new levels. Uh, nobody believes in that stuff. You cannot measure these things upstream, downstream, over centuries. And, of course, FERC has stopped uh, pipelines. There's no new pipeline. So you're not getting permits to drill. You're not getting permits to uh, begin pipelines. The NEPA reforms uh, have been thrown out the window, uh, you know, for timing. So it's a phony issue. The leases are not the key point. It's the permits that matter, and the permits are being denied because of the uh, emphasis on carbon and climate change. That's the whole problem. And you're not going to get these oil companies to make longer-term investments to explore and drill and pipeline for the simple reason that they know they're up against an administration's uh, Green New Deal climate policies. That's really what's going on here. And and one last point. Other thing, what he pulled off yesterday is just utter nonsense. He's totally depleting our strategic petroleum reserve. He's just totally depleting it. That thing is important if you have a national security emergency. Like if there's a war in the Middle East, and by the way, we're negotiating with Iran for a new deal, and the Saudis and the UAE and the Gulf states hate that. We need that strategic petroleum reserve for a real dire emergency. And he's just depleting it for short-term political gains. Uh, Larry Cudlow, our guest. Larry, we had 434,000 jobs. I think the unemployment drops to 3.6%. Those are good numbers. I think the participation rate among the labor force is around 62-plus percent. So in many, in some cases, the economy is heading in the right direction, but interest rate, inflation, and gas prices specifically weigh that down. What do you you want to go inside the numbers for us? Well, that's right. Look, it was a good report, and you had your four hundred thirty-one thousand non-farm payrolls plus ninety-five thousand upward revision from the prior two months in January and February. So it's really a five hundred thousand number. And the so-called household survey, which picks up small business, was very, very strong, 736,000. And as you say, the unemployment rate uh, is very, very low, and um, it's a strong report. The trouble with this economic story is it's an inflationary boom because of overstimulus from the so-called relief bill a year ago, the $2 trillion bill a year ago. And the Federal Reserve is accommodating all this deficit finance by pumping up their balance sheet and the money supply. I mean, M2 is still growing at about 12, 13 percent. So, again, if you look at opinion polls, Brian, um, people are more concerned about higher inflation 
right. higher food prices and higher gasoline prices than they are about unemployment. Inflation is the number one issue. But there's nothing wrong with this report. I mean, look, wages, I mean, I love high wages. I want the workforce to be rewarded for the work they're doing. Wages really are rising at almost 12% if you look at it properly over the past 12 months. I mean, that's a good number. But inflation is eating away at that. The CPI is 8% and probably going to 10%. So I think the job side is very, very good. I think the inflation side is not good, and we haven't seen the peak of inflation yet. Right. I think it's probably a show horse thing. Except Senator Manchin and Senator Kelly have, have now publicly came out in a letter urging the Biden administration to boost domestic energy production amid rising gas prices. I mean, Kelly's been invisible. He's definitely vulnerable. Republicans think his uh, seat could be taken. He has not stood up for uh, for the border. He has not stood up for energy or anything for his uh, purplish state. But do you think Biden hears something like that? You know Washington. You work for Reagan as well as Trump. When that when two Democrats or two senators in your own party demand something, does that get your attention if you're Ron Klain? Well, it should. But, you know, the trouble with this gang is they're ideologically driven. And everything they do, Brian, is really colored by this climate change zealotry. And by the by, you you know, we talk to experts, there is no immediate existential risk. I mean, you're talking about 50 to 100 year trends. And uh, we're producing an awful lot of very clean burning natural gas. But they won't look at the facts. And they won't even look at the politics, as you say, in a swing state like Arizona, where the senators are starting to rebel. I mean, the solution to this is drill, drill, drill. That is the solution. We need more oil and gas. We need more pipelines to pipe it. So, and uh, by the way, our, uh, I just say our LNG is the cleanest liquefied natural gas in the world, much better than Russia's. So we should get it over to Europe. But Biden's not listening to that. He's not. I mean, even this. Remember uh, last week or 10 days ago, the NATO meeting, they had this uh, energy task force that was going to open the door for more LNG exports from the U.S. to Europe. But if you carefully read that, Brian, it says this was a short term issue and we will still be bound by the regulatory framework of energy. So that tells me that all these uh, obstacles, these regulatory obstacles from FERC and and Energy and Interior and EPA, they're not going to go away. Nothing's going to change because this gang is ideologically bound up to attack fossil fuels. And we, we, the USA, will pay the piper for this. We are not going to get gasoline prices down with 180 million uh, new barrels of oil over six months in a world, Brian, where over six months, 18 billion barrels per day is supplied. So he's putting up 180 million, and he's destroying the strategic petroleum uh, 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 right. uh, caverns. Reserves. It, 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 it reserves. If we, have, if we have a war in the Middle East, he's destroying that for 180 million. It's a drop in the bucket. The global uh, supply will be about $18 billion. So you had a lower price effect yesterday on the announcement. I don't think you're going to get anything more out of this. This is his third pass at Spro. Go to the cause. Go to the source. 
The source is we Real need quick. more gotcha. natural gas and oil. That's all we need. So right now the Russians uh, who supply most of the like over 60% of the oil and gas to uh, Europe, and they're doing a good job weaning themselves off it. They, I saw Germany had an emergency meeting in the UAE, and now the Russians, they've knocked down their, their acquisitions or the, the amount in which they're buying about 10%. Poland's stopping on a dime. That's it. Now, get this. The Russians say, if you want to buy my oil and gas, use rubles. Germany says no. Yeah. What's the significance yeah. of that? Well, it's, we'll see how this plays out. There's very interesting points you make. Obviously, they want to boost the ruble, which had crashed. Now it's coming back some. By the way, our sanctions are still incomplete. Let me just make that point. We are not really sanctioning Russia oil and gas, nor are we properly sanctioning the financing of Russian oil and gas. Now, I want to see if Germany holds the line. Germany says, we'll buy your gas, but we'll pay for it in euros. Russia says, or Putin says, you've got to pay for it in rubles. I want to see how this plays out. It's a very important issue. All right, let's hope they don't uh, cave on that. I just want you to hear what Ron DeSantis said today. He's taken aim at Disney, who's taken aim at his legislation uh, that looks at they should keep gender talk and sex talk out of K through 3. Uh, so here is what Ron DeSantis said when the Disney says they're going to do everything they can to reverse that legislation. Cut 29. Under that law, they actually can build their own nuclear power plant. I mean, it's extraordinary uh, what's been in there. But here's the thing. Um, You know, we very much support uh, the jobs that uh, are employed at Disney. And then there's a larger ecosystem of a lot of small businesses in Florida that feed into our theme parks. And we have the best theme parks in the world. And, oh, by the way, a lot of those Disney employees in Florida, you know, don't believe Disney has handled this well. I understand a lot of the California employees are very activist, but that's just the nature of what we're dealing with here. But here's what I would say. Treating every business the same is, is mm-hmm. what I think, what you should do. Um, and I know a lot of the other competitors to Disney have complained that they don't get the same treatment, sure. you know, that Disney has gotten all, all over these years. So what he did is want to re- he wants to rescind the special status it has uh, in Orlando. And he's moving the legislature to move forward in that. What does special status give you? Your own island, your own country within a state? You know, I think they get special status. They get special tax status. I think they get tax credits. I think they get special amortization on the real estate. I think that's what they're talking about. I'm going to have to look into that some more. But look, how crazy is it? How utterly ridiculous is it for Disney to go woke and and say, uh, you know, five-year-olds should be taught sex and gender in the classroom? I mean, who cares what Disney says, and why does Disney feel compelled to make these public policy statements? And the other point is, you know, the story was running on on the Fox News website. Uh, there's a silent majority inside of the Disney uh, company that doesn't agree with what the far left uh, woke people are trying to pull off here. I mean, just a five year old kid should worry about. Uh, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic and preparing for grade school and so forth and so on. It's a job of the parents to uh, teach them social policies. It's the job of the parents to run the schools, not some crazy left-wing woke people from Walt Disney. So, I, you know, I just am befuddled by this whole story. In fact, you and I will talk about this tonight. I'll find out what these special privileges are, and we'll uh, cover this uh, tonight uh, along with the war in the Ukraine.
You got it. Uh, yeah, Larry, the whole thing is, it's like, it's just such a risk. I don't care where you're on the issue. If you're at Disney, why do you want people at home debating on whether they should go to your park uh, because of your political views? And that's what's happening. And if you look at the poll numbers, this is a popular bill among Floridians, and let alone the rest of the country. It's about parents. It's not about party. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. The parents should run the show. By the way, uh, the outlook for the Disney company and the outlook for the Disney theme parks has deteriorated. Their stock price is like 40% below what the market has done over the past year. I mean, they're trailing the overall market. So this thing is hurting shareholders and investors. And I, I kind of like that in one sense. But in the other sense, it should be a warning sign to Disney management that they should quit screwing around with these crazy woke social policies. Yep. Uh, thanks. So I'm I'll, judging by what I've seen, some of their cartoons don't really want to uh, bring your kid to a cartoon after explaining exactly what they were referring to. But they're starting yeah, to go yeah. into that world. Larry, we're going to see you at four o'clock today on, on Cudlow. OK. Thanks, Brian. You're the best. Appreciate All right. It. Thank you. Uh, Larry Cudlow joining us. And keep in mind, don't forget to join me this weekend, 8 and 11 o'clock on Fox News at Saturday. That's One Nation. Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. I think the Democrats, the problem is they seem to have their uh, priorities a little off as to what average people, like, they, they think the only thing worse than hitting somebody with a hammer is making a mistake about their preferred pronouns. Yes. They're, they're, they're obsessed with harping on language and scolding, and they don't realize that they should focus on the important stuff, mm-hmm. like the genitals of college swimmers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Norton last night on Gutfeld, uh, just talking about the ridiculousness of the Will Smith story. And there's so many elements to it. Uh, he went on to discuss, listen, where do they go from here? What would have happened? And their reaction was disgusting. Cut 34. The only person who's ever slapped me at a club is a club owner after he saw ticket counts. I'm not worried about anybody rushing onto the stage. It's not going to happen. It hasn't opened a Pandora's box. Uh, it was disgusting. And the reason they stood up and clapped is because these dopes see everything like it's a movie. Right. Like they saw drama. And then he goes up and he cries. And they saw redemption. And then they gave him a round of applause in, in an act of forgiveness. For them, the whole thing was like a movie. And they're a bunch of narcissists who didn't want their party spoiled. And basically, uh, that is Jim Norton, uh, outstanding comedian, and he just sat in on the Gutfeld show. But to talk about the Will Smith, because that's what everyone's talking about. I mean, it's certainly not the most important story in the world, but just think he's probably the top five most famous actors. Calmed down by the best actor, Denzel Washington, and the most box officeable actor, Bradley Cooper. But not many people are taking care of Chris Rock, who just decided to maybe attend a party. And then went back to stand-up, where he got a standing ovation on both shows he did the other night. And says, I'll talk about it at some point. But I think within the next week, you're going to find out what the Academy will do. My prediction, five years ineligible for any type of award, nor can he attend any ceremony. What do you think? I feel most of all, I feel bad for the Williams family. Uh, They have a great story. It was a great movie. And no one's talking about that. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade.
Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here and getting ready for your weekend. Of course, we're going to be following all the big stories uh, of the day. Of course, it's April Fool's Day. I will not fall for anything. I hope you don't either. Usually, they don't end up good. Uh, They're only good for the people who fool you. Never good for you when you're the victim. That's what I've noticed. The only thing I liked as a Met fan was the Sid Finch one from, I believe, the 80s. And they had this big elaborate story about how this pitcher throws 110 miles an hour and the Mets catcher is walking out of a secret tryout and this guy, Sid Finch, no one's ever seen anything like him. And uh, it was in Sports Illustrated. Everyone thought it was true and they could not believe it. And then it turns out to be a, a total hoax. Thought that was, okay, nobody got hurt by that. Maybe a few Met fans got let down. But besides that, I don't think April Fool's is a good idea. And I'm going to hold to that. So... Thank you. I'm no fun. Thank you. Uh, Meanwhile, I think uh, also we're going to talk to Ian O'Connor. We're going to talk about the Final Four. He wrote this great book about Coach K. He'll also be joining me on my weekend show, One Nation. And um, for the first time in history, North Carolina plays Duke in the Final Four. And, man, uh, both teams are playing exceedingly well. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. But some companies have been pretty blunt. They don't want to increase supply because Putin's price hike means higher profits. The problem we're facing with gas prices has two roots. First, the pandemic. The second root is Vladimir Putin. Uh, There you go. Uh, That is Joe Biden reading the teleprompter, really struggling. It's the economy, and we are not stupid. We know who's to blame. Not that lunatic, Vladimir Putin. We'll review the numbers, projections, and why oil and gas companies have to start sticking up for themselves. Number two. It was an absolute embarrassment. And, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post don't get a standing ovation for confirming the authenticity of those Hunter Biden laptop emails 16 months after the New York Post broke the story that was then barred by Twitter. Man, that is so true. The Hunter Biden scandal is equally a media scandal. I'll tell you the latest on the investigation and the excuses many outlets are giving for not linking to the president. Number one. Certain Ukrainian parliament members are still telling Congress that they are not getting not only the weapons they need, but the shipments have slowed. We would not agree that it's being slowed. Quite the contrary. That was completed in a record three weeks or so, um, which is unheard of. Uh, That is John Kirby. Pivotal weekend in the war in Ukraine, not because of the truce talks, but the tactics on both sides as the Russian continues to show absolutely no conscience. A humanitarian corridor they set up was an ambush. And did Ukrainians start? uh, Ukrainians uh, have a big question. Did they start bombing inside Russia last night? We have the latest. Plus, where is the NATO aid and the U.S. weapons that the taxpayers have paid for? Let's bring in Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, former NATO allied uh, LANCOM commander. Uh, General, welcome. Ryan, good morning. Thank you. General, I, I don't know if you could possibly get the answer to this, but we write the checks in America. We uh, see here about the supplies, but from the anecdotal information and other reports that we're getting from the Pentagon, they are uh, Pentagon reporters. The aid and the weapons is slowing down and it's not getting to the people that need it. Frustrations running high among the Ukrainian parliament and leadership. What do you know? So we are in the decisive phase of this war. Uh, What happens in the next three weeks, I think, is going to determine what happens much further down the road. Uh, The the Russians have culminated. They cannot continue long-term sustained offensive operations. 
uh, and so it, it's an opportunity now. We've got our foot on the Russian's neck. It's time to break it. But this situation, this window, is going to pass in about three weeks if we are not able to deliver with a sense of urgency exactly the capabilities that we know that Ukrainians need. And it's no longer just about javelin or stinger. It's about long-range artillery and rocket ammunition and systems that they already know how to use. Otherwise, I think the Russians will begin to eventually uh, crawl back uh, and, and regain some momentum. So that's why these three weeks are essential. Absolutely, General. But do you know why the S three hundreds aren't there? Do you know why the uh, the drones, the suicide, the the kamikaze drones haven't arrived? I mean, what yeah, what is I, going I, on? I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what what the um, the status is of the various things that are supposed to be delivered. I am sure from talking to senior uh, U.S. military logisticians in Europe that they are working 24-7, along with others uh, who are trying to deliver what what has arrived in theater. So it's it's not for a lack of effort there. Um, are you sure? Are you I'm sure? Brian. There, there, there's, a, there's a theory out there that General Keene has talked about that he has some sources saying that the administration does not want to see Russia collapse on this or be further humiliated on this. They never mention winning. And I'm wondering if it's an intentional okay. slowdown. Well, you, you cut me off right when I was about to say this. And, I, of course, I respect my, my former commander, General Keene. Um, I don't think there's an, an intention to keep Russia from collapsing. But I, I, what I don't hear is uh, any talk about winning. Uh, I think there is too much emphasis um, on avoiding escalation, avoiding World War III, and not enough emphasis on winning. And so that's why we're not seeing a proactive move to go around and get these weapons from our Central and Eastern European allies who have the things that the Ukrainians are asking for. We should be pushing that. We don't need another list. We need to just get what's out there and and be pushing it. So, no, we're not trying to keep Russia alive. But there's not enough emphasis on winning. So evidently, we went out of our way, and this isn't really your area, uh, General, but we went out of our It does affect the war. J.P. Morgan, I guess, does a lot of the financing for, for Russian interests, and they check with the government, and they made sure that the Russians did not default on their debt this month. Why is that? Why, if that indeed pans out to be the truth, what are we thinking? Well, look, uh, that to me is despicable if that's if that's what's happening. But it's it's no less, uh, no more despicable than the uh, cook industries who were who have refused to pull their businesses out. That's I mean, there there are a lot of holes. There are a lot of holes in our uh, economic approach. Although I would say we're doing better now than I've ever seen us before in trying to close these holes. But there still are too many gaps. And and what we need is to hear um, uh, we, that we are in this to win, right. to make sure that Russia is not able to come back in two or three years. You know, when President Reagan said, Russia, evil empire, uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, you know, there were diplomats that were wetting themselves when he spoke so forcefully. And just like when President Biden last week said in Warsaw, Putin should not remain in power. There were people that almost passed out that he would say something so direct. But this is exactly what's needed for democracy to defeat autocracy is for our leaders to speak clear and forceful, even if it's not elegant. 
Well, meanwhile, uh, they walked him back in a matter of minutes, and they walked him back, and then he walked himself back in a confusing fashion on Monday. But besides the Koch brothers, the bigger problem is almost the entire Middle East is still tra- trading with them, including Israel. The bigger problem is China is still trading with them, said there, there's no limits there is no limits to our partnership. That was the quote as the EU meets with China. And Brazil as well has not cut off relations. South Africa has not cut off relations. That's helping India, if I didn't mention, has helped sustain this uh, humanitarian disaster. Forget about a war. What about the fact that they're targeting schools and hospitals? Do countries, democracies especially, really want to be associated with this? Look, I'm with you on this. I I think that China actually is probably um, experiencing some buyer's remorse that they've handcuffed themselves to a corpse and that their ability to uh, be a global leader, if you will, is going to be uh, degraded um, if the rest of us see them as enabling Russia's uh, continuing ability to murder innocent Ukrainians. You know, India, it's to me, and Israel, inexplicable to me that they would not be 100 percent against what Russia is doing. So this is why the administration and the Congress have got to make it clear that we are in this to win, and then that we we pull out all the stops to make sure that uh, other countries do not enable Russia to continue the fight. But we also have to make sure that we're 100% clean uh, internally as well. So I want you to hear what Ben Wallace said and tell me what your sources say. And by the way, I'm talking to somebody who's uniquely qualified to give great insight on this uh, battle Ukraine and Russia. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, who's a former NATO Allied Landcom commander, lived in Germany uh, of last four years since retiring. And the last uh, duty position was a commanding general in the U.S. Army in Europe. Uh, so you know this area and you know the dangers and you know how the Germans have really, to the surprise of many, have got on board. But here's what Ben Wallace said, the British defense minister cut for. You know, President Putin is not the force he used to be. He is now a man in a cage that he built himself. He's isolated. His army is exhausted. He has suffered significant losses. The reputation of this great army of Russia uh, has been trashed. Uh, And and he has now got to live with the consequences, not only uh, of what he's doing to Ukraine, but he's also got to live with the consequences of what he's done to his own army. What do you think? I mean, no one knows for sure, but he's saying that for a reason, right? Yeah, Mr. Wallace is is dead on correct, uh, and uh, he's been a very strong voice from the beginning, and he and he's displayed the sense of urgency that um, that we need to be seeing coming out of the Pentagon and uh, out of the White House and State Department as well. The, the Russians are in a terrible fix right now. They're in trouble. Um, they uh, have manpower problems. They have logistics problems, but this will not last forever. And, and this is why we have got to have a sense of urgency here over these next three weeks while we've got our foot on the neck of the Kremlin to snap it so that they don't come back. Because if we don't do this, then in two, three, four years, after we've lost interest in the Black Sea region again, they will come back. So I want to give you the Institute for Study of War. It says these are some of the highlights from today. The Ukrainian forces successfully conducted local counterattacks in and around Kiev and towards the Sumy and Kyrgyzstan uh, region and will likely take further territory today, as in today. Ukrainian forces continue to repel Russian assaults in the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, regions, and the Russian forces failed to take territory over the last 24 hours, and they continue to steadily advance in Mariupol. Uh, the, our number one, are you surprised that the Ukrainians are having some success in those previous captured, uh, previously captured regions? 
No, and I must say the Institute for Study of War does a terrific they job. Do. They have some of the best maps that are out there. The one I was looking at this morning showing those highlighted areas where Ukrainian forces have retaken territory. Look, they have um, the uh, the willpower, the, the moral advantage, if you will, and they know the terrain. The Russians have culminated, meaning they don't have enough resources, and they've suffered so many casualties that they're having to pull back. And, and so the Ukrainians are smart enough to follow up on this. And this is what we want to continue. We want to see them continue to follow up, to get back. I mean, at a minimum, the minimum is that we want to get the Russians back before the line of 24 February. I mean, that's we should not settle or uh, enable any settlement that falls short of that. I, I hear you. And get this report. It says the the Russians uh, had no idea of the psychology of the Ukrainian people, that this president, that their leader, Vladimir Putin, who prides himself on in his intelligence background, was totally caught by surprise by the pushback and the lack of uh, wanting uh, the Ukrainians wanting the Russians to be there. They're also saying that these Russians are, are shooting themselves to get off the line, that they shot down one of their own planes. They said by mistake, but they said others said it was on purpose. So a well with at least seven generals shot in this mission. By If this was the American standards, this would be beyond a disaster. By Russian standards, are they just – do they just view casualties differently? Well, look, we're seeing the, the manifestation of decades of corruption inside the Ministry of Defense, inside the military, and inside the government. And um, – you know, when people talk about uh, Putin as if he was some genius or uh, so smart that he could play go and chess while standing on his head, um, and he's a KGB agent. If he, but yet now people are trying to apologize for him, saying, "Well, you know, he hadn't been informed properly. What's going on?" It's a total false narrative. But you're right; they don't have um, uh, the same concern for. Uh, soldiers or civilians, the the way that Western militaries do, certainly the way the United States military does, and the U.S. Congress would be all over us if we were experiencing any of the problems that the Russians um, have uh, put on display of poor equipment, uh, poor execution. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting. These generals that are being killed, most of them are being killed because they're talking on cell phones. I mean, this this shows you a lack of discipline and a lack of experience because. Um, they they don't have the same communications network that we have. When we go somewhere, you bring your own network with you that's secure. They don't have that. And so they, their plan was to use Ukrainian cell service once they got inside Ukraine. And, of course, the Ukrainians are so technically savvy that they're, it's easy to intercept, geolocate, and then you put a rocket on top of the, the guy on the phone. That's, that's what's happening to these guys. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, always great. Thank you. Brian, thank you. You got it. Uh, listen, I'll take your calls next, one 408 7669 or write me, com. I'll go through them. Then Ian O'Connor joins us to preview the Duke-North Carolina game as well as Villanova plays Kansas. I get it. But Ian focuses on his brand-new book, Coach K, The Rise and Reign of the Most Successful Coach, uh, the most winningest coach in the history of college basketball. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. 
And while Disney is now presenting itself as the moral arbiter about children and sexuality, uh, there is a dark side to Disney. Uh, in fact, over the last few years, dozens and dozens of Disney employees have been arrested for child pornography, child sex expo exploitation, and even child rape. So I'm not going to sit here for one minute and take moral lectures from these moral midgets like the Disney CEO and the Disney president who have been covering for, hiring, and even enabling child sex predators for decades. And that is Chris Rufo, who broke the story about what's going on behind the scenes in Disney, and he was able to put out some tapes which seem to be somewhat corporate Zoom calls where they talk about their gay agenda and how it's no secret they're looking to put a gay agenda in Disney. Well, believe me, uh, what are you talking about? You're supposed to maximize the profits and creativity of a company. What are you trying to put your own agenda in there? And shame on Disney for even having this element of part of their company. And they made this such a stupid move to get involved with this Parental Rights Act that is now law in Florida, where over 60% of the Floridians totally support it, even though you've gone out of your way to mislabel it as the Don't Say Gay Bill, and those idiots at the Oscars parroted that. Nobody says anything about gay. It says don't bring up sexuality for K through third grade. That was it. And if Disney thinks the fallout's bad now, it's going to get a lot worse. You're not on the right side of this. And guess who's on the right side again? His instincts are 100% correct. It is Ron DeSantis. Cut 29. I think what has happened is there's a lot of these special privileges that are not justifiable, but because Disney had held so much sway, they were able to sustain a lot of special treatment over the years. The state should be governed by the best interests of the people. You should not have one organization that is able to dictate policy um, in all these different realms. So he is going to take away their special status and put it through the legislature. As Jim Banks says, the congressman from Indiana, uh, the Disney people go to Disney for a vacation, not for indoctrination. And that's what people are going to think when they step on that campus, which costs a ton of money uh, in Disneyland and Disney World. Good luck, guys. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. You might, uh, might ask, why are you doing this right now? This is not about health. It's not about COVID. It's not about that. It's certainly not about what's going on with college basketball, where, boy, the game's changing. I've been in it for 46 years. You mean the game's never changed? In the progression of the game, we have always had to adapt. Those aren't the reasons. Those would be bad reasons. The reason we're doing this is because Mickey and I have decided the journey's going to be over in a year, and we're going to go after it as hard as we possibly can. And then we'll be a part of Duke's continuing journey for as long as we're around. Yeah, and that'll be Coach K going up to the maybe a different office, not doing the recruiting, and retiring, win or lose, tonight or on Monday. Uh, on Saturday, I should say. Uh, joining us now to discuss this, or oh, tonight. Uh, uh, joining us now to discuss this, Ian O'Connor. He's got a great book out, New York Post columnist, of course, and author of uh, Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski, uh, four New York Times bestsellers in the past. So this is your fourth, right, Ian? That's right, Brian, but not as many as you. Well, uh, <laughs> you're you, the master. Well, I mean, you're doing the biographies. I don't know how you did it with a guy that coached that long and you went back to his playing days. The book is fantastic. And, man, it's nice Thank of him you. to go to the Final Four and shock everyone to do it. What has that been like? 
Well, I think he's surprised, Brian. I really do. I, I think just given the uneven way his team played in some end game tense situations during the regular season, I really think he's a, a little bit blown away by, by this run. He would never admit that for public consumption. But down five with five minutes left to Michigan State in round two of this tournament. I think everyone in the building who had watched Duke a lot this year, myself included, thought they were losing that game. But they grew up in real time, in the nick of time, and and that's why they're on the run they're on right now and a chance to win the national championship. What does it mean? So they're going to be playing Saturday night. They're playing the second. Uh, they're playing the second game. What does it mean to play North Carolina? For those people who do not live uh, by ACC basketball, why don't you put this in perspective? First time in history, these two are playing each other in the Final Four. Right, and they're they're playing now for the 258th time, and this is the first time they've ever met in the NCAA tournament, and it's in the Final Four in Coach K's last season. I mean, you could argue this is the biggest, this is at least one of the biggest games in the history of college basketball, if not the biggest. It, it's a rivalry unlike any other in college basketball. It's one of the biggest in all sports. You have the Yankees and the Red Sox. You have Michigan and Ohio State. It's up there with the best of them. Uh, no matter who they are, pro and college. So it is a titanic matchup with titanic consequences for the loser. I actually think Duke has more to lose here because it's Coach K's final season. North Carolina was an eight seed. They had a strange season. They came on late. They're not playing with house money. They have a little pressure on them. But I think, Brian, the most pressure by far is on Duke. And the other one is Kansas and Villanova. So the winner's not going to have a walk uh, in the park uh, in the final should uh, whoever does emerge. But this year for Coach K, he's the winningest coach ever. But you do you point to a guy that really, um, I mean, he's as volatile in many respects by the time I was done with your book as Bobby Knight. I mean, he was always so up and down, oftentimes cool and composed when he felt his team uh, was uh, a little nervous. But who's the guy that you, how would you describe the Coach K you one thought you were studying and revealing and the one you ended up revealing in your book? Well, I think the first time I was a little surprised by his coaching style was the first time I ever sat right behind him in a game. It was a Sweet 16 in 1999 in New Jersey. And, man, the, the profanity was relentless, and it was extreme for two hours and 15 minutes nonstop, directed at referees, at his players, even at his assistant coaches. And I didn't know that. So I've talked to so many people over the years who said the first time they sat near the Duke bench, they were blown away by <laughs> by the profanity. So I, I think he does have a lot of Bobby Knight inside of him. The difference is Knight would cross the line of acceptable conduct, coach the player. Mike would go up to that line, but not really cross it. Now, there are a few times he could say some tough, degrading things to players, and he has many times over the years. There's probably a couple of times he did that where he did go too far. But Overall, I think, and some of those players transferred because they didn't like that style, but overall, the vast majority of players became better human beings for having the experience of being coached by Mike Krzyzewski, without question. Have you figured out why he's retiring? I think uh, some, I know the sound you just played, he said the pandemic had nothing to do with it and changing college basketball. Right now with the transfer portal and free agency in college basketball, I, I think that was part of it. I think the pandemic wore him down some last year. He is 75 years old, Brian. I mean, at some point he has to call it quits. He does want to spend time with his grandkids, but he's keeping his office on the sixth floor. And I know he says he's not going to have any influence over the next coach, John Shire, but let's see how that plays out. I, I, basketball has been his entire professional life. He doesn't have many hobbies. I think he's going to be a little bit more involved than he's letting on. I know you talk about, you know, the the agony of losing his best friend and being there every day as Jim Valvano lost his life. You also talk about the 
the dumb thing he did, my view, the dumb thing he did getting college newspaper reporters, sitting him in a chair, trying to intimidate them to write more positively <laughs> about the team. It's nuts. I, I did not even know that existed, not being all over basketball. But here it is. Every, his, last, his next loss is his last loss, and the only way to win, to end with a win is to win it all. Here he is going to the Final Four, and here's his comments uh, after uh, beating Arkansas. Cut 39. There's nothing like being a regional champ and going to the Final Four and playing on that Saturday with three other champions. It's an amazing day. I know there's emotion, but for you to be able to continue this run in your oh, final season. I'm on, I'm on their bus. I'm on their bus. They're not on my, and my Yo, you should interview him. This is the goat right here. No, no, shut up. <laughs> Tell his players, <laughs> shut up. But then the last time they played North Carolina, they lost in Duke's final home game, right? That's right. It was a decisive loss, at least the, the last 10 minutes of that game. But, yeah, that one hurt. And I think this will erase the sting of that, Brian. If, if Coach K beats North Carolina in the Final Four, I don't think too many people are going to care, at least on the Duke side of things, about losing that final game in Cameron Indoor Stadium. So this was the one way to wipe that bitter memory away for good. And I, I do think Duke will win the game. I think they are the slightly better team. They have more talent. Now Carolina has more experience, and they're hot, so anything can happen uh, Saturday night. But – I suspect that Duke will win this game and win the whole thing and send out Coach K the way UCLA sent out John Wooden in 1975. So he's a superstar player in high school. He could have won everywhere. He ends up going to the military academy, being coached by Bobby Knight, being one of Bobby Knight's, I guess, most respected players, being his quarterback. Got into coaching, got some big jobs because Knight recommended him and stood by him. And even when he struggled at, at Duke and he was under 500, he thought he was going to be fired and said he got a new contract that by, from Tom Butters, his AD, and that was the key. Sometimes people got to believe in you, even though in the record doesn't show it. But I want you to bring, I want to uh, have you relive and define this moment. Here is Coach Krzyzewski's first title, Duke, Kansas. Cut 40. smile. He knows he has that monkey off his back. Duke has won its first national championship. When you write that, what is, how did it change him? Well, Brian, I, I've seen in the book in year two at Duke, he, he was uh, crying alone in a room at, at Princeton after losing to Princeton on the road because he thought he was losing his grip on, on what was a dream job. And an assistant coach happened to walk into a room looking for him after that game at Princeton and found him alone weeping. Uh, so th- that's where it was for him. He was 9-17 and 17 in his final year at Army. Somehow Duke hired him. I'm not quite sure how. And and in year three, he loses to Wagner at home while Jim Valvano's winning a national title next door. And Dean Smith the year before had won a national title next door. So for him to get to the top of the mountain and beat UNLV in 91 in the semis and then Kansas in the final, that UNLV team still is the best college basketball team I've ever seen. It was a monumental breakthrough for him. They were the Buffalo Bills before the Buffalo Bills in those final fours prior to that constantly losing so uh, it changed. I wouldn't have written this book, and he. this would not be nearly as big a deal had he not won that first title in 91 without a- question. Absolutely. But, you know, he was stuck around with the success there. And they were, he was not taking over a terrible program, right? He was taking over a program that he knew was going, to be, was going to be tough and had to be rebuilt. And a lot of those other players weren't buying into Coach K, the Army guy, who K was under 500, not a big name at that moment. A lot of people in town didn't want him hired. So what about this great moment, Duke, Kentucky, Christian Leitner arguably is – Best player ever, cut 41, 1992. I get they were trailing by one. 
So we have Grand Hill to Christian Leitner with almost no time left on the clock. Cut 41. Will the dream die here for Duke? You know, one of the things I've seen Duke do in the past in situations like this is try for the quick pass to half court and call a quick timeout so they can get in better shooting range. There's the pass to Leitner. Puts it up. Yes! Rick Pitino did not guard the inbound pass. Leitner was left alone. The turnaround jumper is good, right? Oh, I was sitting there courtside in the Philly spectrum, man. That was still one of the greatest sporting events I've ever covered. An overtime classic game. And uh, Leitner, right, uh, Patino didn't cover Grand Hill. Grand Hill threw a perfect pass. Leitner had, didn't miss a field goal or a free throw all night, makes that shot. So it took the perfect player to win the perfect game. And afterward, I asked Mike Krzyzewski in the press conference, what did he tell his team in that final huddle with 2.1 seconds left? And they had to go the full length of the court. And he said, we're going to win this game. We are going to win. He got those kids to believe in the impossible, and they pulled it off. It was quite a moment. So you had uh, Rick Patino coming off the Knicks. And he goes to Kentucky, which was just scandal-ridden, rebuilds that program. They are on the cusp of, uh, of a major upset, and he, the 39-year-old coach got outcoached. And here is Coach K going back-to-back with the NCAA championship against the Fab Five, Michigan, who came in uh, determined to intimidate Duke, but in the end, it was them that were intimidated. Cut 42. The final seconds of Christian Leitner's career coming to a close. The game is over. The Duke of Destiny has won it for the first time in two decades. College basketball has a repeat champion. So there you go. Uh, a big win going into that game. Anything but easy, but they had the game plan and the composure because they had been there before. Well, and you asked, asked me what 91 meant to him winning that first championship. I'm not sure they win in 92 or get through that Kentucky game without winning in 91 because would they have had the belief in themselves to pull off that final play, the pass to Leitner and the shot? Uh, I, I'm not sure. Right. So I, I think 91 was everything. It set up 92. And Duke-Kentucky is considered the, the greatest college basketball game ever played. I was fortunate to be there to, to watch it. It was an unbelievable sporting event. So a couple of things, Ian. First off, there, I know Bobby Knight, I guess, is not doing well. Some say he's suffering from dementia, but that was the guy that brought him there. Did they ever make amends? No. No, what happened uh, in 2015 – there was a West Point reunion at Pinehurst in North Carolina. It was the 50th anniversary of Knight's first team at Army. And Krzyzewski went to it, and they had a lot of ups and downs, more downs than ups in their relationship. And he, and he approached Knight at his table, and, and his former coach at Army just completely ignored him, just blew him off. Mike had had enough. He stormed out of the room, and some of his former West Point teammates followed him out the door. And he said, that's it. I am bleeping done with this guy. I'm not trying anymore. And at that point, Mike had been doing 95% of the work to try to repair and maintain the relationship. He was through. So my reporting shows that is the last time they ever spoke. So we're going back, what, seven years. And, yes, I, I don't think a reconciliation is even possible now given Knight's health situation. So it's sad but true, and, and, and Bob Knight is really the one to blame for the unraveling of that relationship. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, he didn't like something that, that uh, you write that Coach K said in a Sports Illustrated article, put it on a piece of paper after he beat Indiana. He saw it, tried to make amends. I guess it never really worked. And lastly, what everyone should understand, this wasn't a guy alone. He brought his family with him. His, his wife was part of this team. His kids were part of this team. That's a great move. For somebody who loves their job, make your family involved, and you won't feel guilty about working 20 hours a day. 
Yeah, that's right, Brian. I know players told me that uh, they learned how to respect women by the way he treated his wife and empowered her and, and his daughters as well. And, and that's more important than anything you can learn on a basketball court, that's for sure. So, you know, yeah, he, he, he involved his family at every turn. Yeah. Absolutely. Ian O'Connor, pick up the book, Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Coach Mike Krzyzewski, and he's predicting Duke wins and gets to the final tonight. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Brian. Fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. This is the third time Biden has tapped the reserves, but he insists they're not dating or anything. It's just strictly casual. (laughs) All right, that is uh, James Corden having a good time last night. And hearing him makes me think that despite the Ukraine being a major story and, of course, Will Smith dominating the headlines, I think there's more to know. More to know. Ever wonder why April Fool's Day is April Fool's Day? Where it came from? Anybody have any thoughts? Well, I'm not, you know what? I'm going to save our audience from you trying to read the story and pronouncing some of these words. And here is basically there's a lot of theories and no one knows. So you can do a great April Fool's Day joke on how April Fool's originated. All right. Historians have linked April Fool's to festivals such as Hilaria, which, I've, of course, she married Alec Baldwin, who was celebrated in ancient Rome at the end of March by followers of the cult Cybel. It involved people dressing up in disguises and mocking fellow citizens and even magistrates. It was said to be inspired by the Egyptian legends of Isis, Osiris, and Seth. Uh, Eric, does that sound like something that, that you've studied? I think it's Osiris. Oh, that, that now it makes sense? That oh, was does, that, that, Is that your theory? I wasn't sure where you were going with it, but Osiris makes sense. Yeah. Some historians speculate April Fool's Day goes back to 1582 when France switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. Is that what you think, Allison? I think you're doing better with these pronunciations than I expected. <laughs> Next. The NFL is requiring teams to hire minority or women as offensive assistants in the Rooney role. This is crazy. Of course, applying Flores, racial discrimination lawsuit has everything to do with this. Beginning this season, all 32 clubs have to employ a diverse, uh, a, a diverse person to serve as an offensive assistant. In recent years, head coaches have predominantly come from the offensive side that's the theory. But everyone's going to know I got hired because they forced the league forced them to hire me. You're going to feel terrible to have that job. Don't you agree? I would think so. And is the league doing themselves a favor here or just digging a deeper hole, right? Aren't deeper they- hole. It's not even thought out of. Ham-handed. This is nuts. The NFL announced other, uh, uh, other diversity initiatives. They had the Rooney Rule, which said you have to interview one minority candidate before you hire a head coach, but they didn't give enough minority candidates. Hey. And that's also caused so many problems, right? Yeah. Well, because a lot of black uh, player coaches going, you just use me as a token. You know you're not going to hire me. Why am I going 3,000 miles to go to freezing Minnesota if you know you're not going to hire me? I don't want to get hired because of an uh, equal opportunity uh, employing contract. And I would say this, Todd Bowles, African-American, now head coach in Tampa. I wonder if that had something to do with it. Bruce Arian stepped down mysteriously. Ah, I know. Right, we're yet to find out those details. This is interesting. Outgoing people have a harder time coping with retirement. Researchers say outgoing people miss their friendships formed with colleagues. On the other hand, conscientious types enjoy leaving the office for good. The trade acts as a psychological buffer. The study is based on the data of 2,000 participants between 50 and 75. I think retirement's hard for everybody unless you have a really hard, rigorous physical job. And sometimes that makes it hard, too. Well, I would agree, and I think the question, right, my mom's a little older, the question is like, well, why do you want to retire, right? Like, what do you want to do instead? Not you like, have enough money. 
that too and also like do you have something you want to do not like am i retiring simply because i'm 67 and i should but the other thing is i feel bad for people that hold in their jobs because they want something to do that i also think is kind of sad i need a place to go but that's but the place you go should be providing a living and a future for you and your family when you lose that rule and you're just doing it i could see volunteering then you're giving up your time for a great cause but if you're just doing a job because but, you have nowhere else to go, that's sad. Well, if you have nowhere else to go, that is sad. But if you're still doing the job because you enjoy it that's and you kid. do a decent job, that exactly. There's so much to learn. And we've never had such a, a, a diversity of stories. I feel like we gave everybody everything they wanted, ever. Tell yourself that. Not sure. Good. I'm hey, well, I'll tell myself something else. I'm going to tell you to watch me at 8 and 11 on Saturday night on Fox News Channel. It's called One Nation. It's captured the imagination of America, I believe. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.